Yeah, so I touched about uh, on this a little bit before. So New York, it's law, it's already in effect. It, manufacturers were required to begin disclosing ingredients as of October 1st of 2021. Unfortunately, in that law, there was no language allowing for product sale through meaning that if there was product on the shelves prior to October 1st and was not labeled appropriately, that it can continue to stay there. That was one of those unknowns and one of those ambiguous issues with the law, unfortunately. And so that train has left the station. They should be complying with New York already. There was a lot of effort among industry to get the state of New York to look at that law and develop some regulations surrounding it to help manufacturers comply with it, to, to clear up some of this ambiguity. Because really, the, the, the law is a one-pager, and it just says manufacturers have to disclose all intentionally added ingredients on the product label. And then, then also has some penalties in it. I, I mean, it's not very extensive. There's a definition for what a period product is, but that's basically the law. In the last few years, there have been a lot of new regulations and legislation pertaining to absorbent hygiene products. And if you're producing products in a country or region that has introduced new legislation, it can be a lot to keep track of. One of the countries that has started to roll out new regulations is the United States. Unfortunately, rather than having one set of regulations for the entire country, currently it is up to states to introduce their own regulations. This can be confusing for producers because while the laws being rolled out are similar to each other and similar to regulations in the EU, they are also different in many ways. Given that producers don't produce packaging or products for just one state in the U.S., they have to figure out how to design packages that comply with both laws. And with other states developing their own regulations, it is only going to get more challenging. Luckily, Bostic is here to help. Welcome to Attached to Hygiene, the podcast that enables you to grow your knowledge and influence in the disposable hygiene industry. I'm your host, Jack Hughes, Global Digital Marketing Manager for Bostic's Disposable Hygiene Business Unit. On today's episode, We'll be discussing these two new laws for absorbent hygiene products in New York and California, as well as developments at the national level in the United States, so that producers and their suppliers can be better prepared to comply with this legislation. Joining me today to discuss legislation and regulatory trends in the U.S. around disposable hygiene products is Jane Wishneff. Good morning, Jack. Good morning, Jane. Thank you for joining the podcast today. As we do with everyone, I'd like to start by having you introduce yourself and your background in the disposable hygiene industry. Great. Yeah, it's Jane Wishnuff, as you said. I'm the owner of JCW Consulting, where I work with various trade associations and companies in strategic planning, membership growth, advocacy planning, regulatory compliance, things like that. Uh, most re recently, I served as the executive director for the Center for Baby and Adult Hygiene Products, or BHP. It's the U.S.-based trade association representing companies within the personal absorbent hygiene industry. Great. Thank you for, for explaining that and introducing BAHP. As I like to ask most of our guests, can you tell me what you like most about working in the hygiene industry? 
Yeah, you know, I've really appreciated what I've seen from the industry and their determination in continuing innovation, producing more sustainable products, and, you know, really focusing on producing products that meet consumers' needs and demands and being willing to evolve as consumers change in what they're looking for for these products. Yeah, absolutely. It's been, I've only been in the industry for a little over five years now, and just the timeline of innovation just in that five years has been really fun to see. And obviously, as you mentioned, the last two to three years, sustainability has been kind of top of mind for everybody, uh, you know, understandably driven by consumers and their their want for more sustainable products. And it's been really cool to see the industry respond to that. And it'll be really interesting to see moving forward what new innovations are coming because, I mean, I think we're, you in consulting and us in, in adhesives, we're, we're seeing stuff all the time in new innovations. So it's been, I agree, it's been very, very exciting. Yeah, exactly. Now, give credit where credit's due. We've had a couple of guests on that, that have had this background, but I saw your slides from Hygienic and loved the information that that you presented in there and therefore wanted to bring you on to, to discuss it again. So thank you for joining us for that. Yeah, great. I really appreciate the invitation. Of course. So as I mentioned at the top, you're here to discuss legislation and regulatory trends in the United States. And can you give us some background on where these legislative updates are coming from? Yeah, you know, I'll start by talking just generally about where I think the pressures are and what's pushing the policy proposals that we're seeing in the U.S. and then maybe jump into a couple of the really one of the highlight, the, the most significant issues that's moving quickly here in the United States. But I think, you know, first and foremost, there's international regulations, and, and we generally see places like the EU, they're much further along on certain issues like chemical management and regulation of single-use plastics than we are here in the U.S. And so, so that's just a natural pressure, and we're going to always continue to see that, right? I also think consumer behaviors, they're changing. Consumers are more educated. They're reading their labels, even though they may not have a full understanding or appreciation of what that what is on those labels, but they're, they're still, they're reading them. There's a demand for more information on the products that they're purchasing, about more information about the products that are being used or in our bodies. And, you know, there's a segment of the population that's willing to pay more for those products and making that information readily available to them. Another pressure, I think, is consumers are shopping differently, especially this COVID era. People are shopping online, going to the stores less, and consumers are, quite frankly, expecting to have the information they want there given to them on the website before they purchase. Um, and then, obviously, we're always going to have NGO pressures, right? The, the NGOs in the United States are very intimately engaged in the, the policymaking process here in the United States, not only at the federal level, but really significantly at the state level. And so I think that's always going to be a, a pressure that industry is going to have coming at them for policy changes. You pull all of that together, and I think it's a perfect storm for the issue of ingredient disclosure and mandates on our industry. Specifically right now, it's focused on period products, but mm -hmm. requiring manufacturers and marketers of those products to share with consumers the, all of the information, all of the ingredient information, really, on the products that they're purchasing. And so I think we're seeing that we already have two laws, two existing laws in the United States, one in the state of California, one in the state of New York. Unfortunately, there is no federal mandate for 
period product manufacturers to disclose all the ingredients in their products. You know, these are considered medical devices under FDA regulations. And while FDA does require a certain extent of labeling on the product packaging, the disclosure of all the ingredients isn't one of those. And so we're in this situation where the states are pushing forward on this issue. As I said, we have two existing state laws. We have other states who are very interested in, in some states who have even introduced new legislation that would require ingredient information to be disclosed specifically. And most recently, the state of New Jersey, um, a bill was introduced this month. And none of these either existing state laws or bills being introduced in the states uh, mirror each other. They're all contradictory. And so, you know, we're in this situation where the most crucial thing is to find some sort of uniformity or consistency within these programs. Number one, it's impossible for manufacturers to label their products differently in 50 different states, right? Um, but also, for the consumer standpoint, if they are reading labels that are made for different states and they're labeled in a different way, it's really not serving the purpose to consumers, really. It, it's just adding to the confusion for the consumer. Um, and so we're really in a position that a federal mandate on requiring disclosure of ingredients is is needed, and it's needed sooner rather than later. Need to need this to be done before even more states beyond New York and California pass laws. And so I think that's where one of the issues that we're going to see moving, I think, very quickly here in the United States with regards to this industry. You know, obviously, single-use plastics is top of mind for everybody. And we're going to see that kind of, we'll see how that unfolds here in the United States. Um, I think, you know, we're battling different proposals in many, many states and proposals at the federal level. And and as we work through those, we'll really be able to see how that those are actually going to affect our industry and to what level. So I think, you know, those are probably the two highest priority issues that are facing the industry right now and, and where where industry should and must be engaged. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, I think it's it's pretty uh, crazy to think that it's, you know, disposable hygiene products have been around for 50, 60, 70 years, and they're obviously in contact with intimate parts of the body. In some cases, as in tampons, are inside the body for use. And it's crazy that no ingredient requirements have, have been mandated to this point. And the interesting thing about the United States is state governments have a lot of power, as they should in some cases. But <laughs> as you said, it makes it very difficult if California is doing one thing and New York's doing the other thing and New Jersey's doing something different than New York, but slightly similar to California. Yeah, manufacturers can't keep up with that. They don't have facilities in every state producing products for that state. It, they're spread out all over the country and the world shipping products all over the place. And unfortunately, you know, that's going to end up result in increased costs for the manufacturers with more regulatory staff and, and you know, all of that changing in manufacturing, which, again, unfortunately, is going to be passed on to the consumer. And, again, yeah, just, you know, it doesn't serve the consumers any value in just in having conflicting laws that not only confuse them, but also result in more expensive products. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite of what we're going for. And <laughs> Exactly. Now, I, I just did a recent interview with Jan O'Regan from Cotton Inc. She mentioned that some manufacturers were doing it voluntarily before some of the changes from New York and California came online. And, and yeah. the, obviously, that is the, the trend of the industry and, and some of these new startups to just be more transparent and open with their growing communities. Can you share some of the companies that are doing that and, and what the response of not only consumers, but the industry overall has been to that? Yeah, I th there are several manufacturers and marketers who have been doing this for for a, 
quite some time. And unfortunately, it has not been recognized to a big extent, uh, depending on which company is doing it. There's large manufacturers, the biggest guys have been doing it for quite some time. And a lot of this, like you said, the startups, the smaller guys have also been doing this. The issue is, you know, that there is no level of consistency in the way these companies are doing it. So you'll see some companies, they are putting this on their product labels, while others are just really focusing on sharing this information on their websites, you know, for a variety of reasons. I think the value of being able to provide this information on the website is that, is you're able to provide a little bit more contextual information about the ingredients and why they're in those products, right? You can you can talk about the function and talk about, you know, to what level they're in the products, you know, just put it a little bit more context around these ingredient names to help consumers understand better the ingredients that are in the products. And so, you know, some marketers have been doing that and doing it in a fantastic way. You know, and then there's there's some industry groups out there that have been creating tools that would increase the availability of information to, available to consumers. One of those is a program called Smart Label. It was developed a handful of years ago by the Consumer Brands Association and its members. There's companies in the personal absorbent hygiene industry that participate in this voluntary program. So uh, Smart Label, it's app-based, so consumers can have the app on their phone, go to the store and scan the, the, the product code in the store and pull up a wealth of information on the product before they even purchase it. And it's not just ingredient information. Smart Label goes further and talks a little bit, you know, incorporate some safety aspects as well. And so that's that's a great program. But the thing about disclosure is, is from my experience and what I've seen in the companies I've worked with is it's something that they support and stand behind. It's just finding the right way to do it so that it's done in a consistent way for both manufacturers and consumers for all the reasons that you and I, you know, just just mentioned. Yeah. And in the United States, at least, we've been conditioned to look at food labels, you know, and and all the ingredients are there. And you may not know what all those ingredients are, all the different, the different yeah, I can't pronounce half of them, but yeah. you know, so we're conditioned to do that. So it, it it makes sense that some companies would go to put that stuff on the label. But as you said, doing it on a website, doing it on an app, you can add more context that you can't fit on a label. But me personally, as a consumer, I would rarely go to a website, a, a product website, or even an app just to be like, okay, what ingredients are in this product? Yeah. If if they're not on the packaging and I'm concerned, I'm probably not going to buy it. And I, maybe I'm not you know, your average consumer and I, I don't buy period products. I don't buy, well, occasionally for my wife, but I don't buy baby <laughs> diapers. We don't have kids. So I don't have that particular experience, but I, it, it's got to be a tough thing for, for manufacturers to balance and figure out what's the right thing. And as we discussed previously, even tougher because we've got multiple states that are going to have different, you know, regulations or rules around what needs to be disclosed and how. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So then you kind of alluded to a couple of regulations already in place in California, New York, with more coming in New Jersey. And I know there are many more states that are considering this, but what regulations are we seeing now in the U.S.? So right now, the New York state law, the, the Mental Product Right to Know Act, that is already in effect. That went into effect in October of last year. So consumers in New York should already be seeing more and new information on the period products that they're purchasing. In the, as we mentioned, California law is, it goes into effect January 2023. So companies, that's that's not a lot of time from now. So companies are already in the determining how to comply with that law. And, you know, in a lot of instances, really trying to figure out 
how do you pull New York and California, how do you comply with both of them, but label in the same way? Um, as I said, they're not incredibly consistent. California is a very prescriptive law though, and it provides a lot of guidance or specifics on how manufacturers are, are to comply with the law um, and where New York is quite vague. And so being that different, it does give manufacturers, you know, some ability to analyze both and perhaps come up with a compliance strategy that, that they feel could meet both laws and standards. But, you know, we're going to see more states beyond New Jersey. We've, you know, we know Pennsylvania has been interested in this issue. The state of Virginia has been interested in this issue, West Virginia. We'll continue to see more and more of that. Um, and really what we're, we're, we're going to see a federal bill introduced. Uh, Congresswoman Grace Ming from the state of New York has been interested in period products for quite some time. She has introduced ingredient disclosure bills in the past. She's been working and I think is committed to working with stakeholders on introducing a bill that makes sense. And so I, I believe, I know that industry and other stakeholders in this area are working hard to put together a program that makes the most sense on the federal side. And so I, I hope we see that bill introduced soon in the near future. Um, and hopefully that'll that'll get a lot of support uh, on Capitol Hill. Yeah, hopefully, because it just makes it harder for cons for producers and consumers. Yeah, it's easy enough when you just have to try and fit you know, what you're putting on a label into two states. But you add six to that or 20 to that or 50 to that. It's, yeah. it's uh, I don't envy that challenge. So, I, yeah. Federal regulation can can only make things a lot easier and more transparent and, and easier for for consumers to read as well. Yep, and you know the real estate on these product packages is not extensive, and again, there's a lot of other important information that they have to put on the label that's required by FDA, and so you, you never want to lose the the safety information or the the directions for use on any of these products. Um, so it's a, it's really another important consideration. You know, it's worth noting, too, is the state of California in their law, not only do manufacturers have to disclose the ingredients on the product package, but they also must disclose that on online. And so that's, I think, a really great, again, as I when I first started talking about just consumers are online more and more than we've ever seen and making purchases online more than we've ever seen. I think that was a really important aspect of that law to, to require that online component. Just wanted to, you know, that was that was worth noting as well. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point earlier, it it allows you to add that context to to what's on the label already. And and maybe you have to list a certain ingredient that could have a bad reputation, perception in the market, but you can explain that further online and, and add more context as to why it's there or or in what amounts to essentially reassure the consumer that it's just, you know, it's a completely safe product. Manufacturers aren't trying to hurt consumers. Those are the people buying the products, but you know they they also need to use the ingredients they need to use to make the product perform at the level that consumers expect. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so this may be obvious, and you alluded to it a little bit in some of the explanation around the New York and California laws. But how has the industry responded to these changes? You know, I think most importantly and most impressive is how engaged industry has been. Like I said, that, that they've been involved in the, the development of the program in California and have been very proactive here in, in Washington, D.C. and putting together a federal program. So I think that's the most important thing to, to note and to recognize is that there's been a real level of engagement from the industry. 
A couple things that I also saw when I was at BHP was that that organization put together a an ingredient dictionary, so it or a, a glossary. Let's I'll start with the glossary. They put together an ingredient glossary, which it pulls together all of the ingredients that the manufacturers are using in period products. It's posted online, and then there's a descriptor or an explanation of of the purpose or the function of all of those ingredients in period products, um, and that's being pushed out to consumers, which I think is really important because again. Again, specifically right now in the state of New York, they're seeing new information on the product packages. And so we have, we as an industry, I think, are obligated to help consumers understand what that information is. And so BHP put together that ingredient glossary, which is on one of their consumer-facing websites, which was really well done. And then also there is some interest within industry to find common ways to name ingredients. And again, this goes to the, the end goal of ensuring consumers understand what they're reading and looking at. And so we know that nomenclature is always a tricky issue and can be confusing for some folks, but I think that there there is a desire within the the industry to provide consistent names for ingredients and in a way that consumers can understand. And so again, that that's all an active, proactive engagement in this area, which has been, I think, re- really, really fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I'm, as, as I said earlier, trying to pronounce some of the some of the ingredients on, particularly in food, but especially in a, in a product like a, a disposal hygiene product. I, yep. It's not something that everyday consumers know how to pronounce or know what it is. And, and so I think that's great that they're working to make sure there's consistency and in a language that consumers can understand and take in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we know states are acting and you said that, was it Grace Maine from New York is, is looking? Uh, yeah. yeah, so it's looking to to do something at the federal level, but obviously the FDA, as as you said, has some oversight over what needs to be disclosed on certain packaging and things like that, particularly with with these type of products. So, what is the FDA doing along with states, or or as states are doing their own thing? You know, so so FDA hasn't taken any public stance on the issue of disclosure. They're definitely aware of the the push in the states and some demands for consumers. They've actually gotten some petitions from NGO groups encouraging them to develop regulations that would require the public disclosure of ingredients, but they haven't acted on it. I do know that they are aware of what's going on on Capitol Hill. When when you're putting together a bill, it's very normal for the Capitol Hill staff to reach out to a federal agency to kind of get technical feedback and expertise. And so I know that that dialogue is happening. And so they're, they're, they're aware. And again, they, they cannot take a public stance on that, but they haven't moved on this specific area of disclosure. Quite honestly, Jack, we haven't seen a whole lot of activity from FDA proactive activity from FDA with regards to the personal observant hygiene industry. So obviously we know period products are regulated under FDA and so are adult incontinence products. They're also classified as medical devices under FDA. And we haven't seen over the last couple of years a whole lot of move for regulatory changes by FDA. There is one issue that's probably worth noting, and that is there was a a UDI exception, a unique device identifier. It's a tool used by FDA really to help with product recalls and to do it quickly. It requires products to have a certain label on their product package so that the retailers can scan it and, and again, do a quick recall, take products off shelves. It requires, number one, product manufacturers to change their label. But then on top of that, it requires that the retailers actually have this technology 
that links up with that UDI. Several years ago, the industry was able to get a policy exception for tampon manufacturers with regards to this. So FDA had ruled that as long as you have a UPC code on your product package, that's okay. You don't have to comply with the full UDI requirements that are under FDA's regulatory scope. Um, and really the rationale behind that was, is at that time, the retail industry, they, they didn't have the technology in place to read and interpret those standard UDIs. So that exception was set to expire in the fall of 2022. As an industry, um, they petitioned to get that extension permanent. FDA didn't grant the permanent extension. They extended it until September 2023. And I know that that's, that's over a year away, but I do know that it takes at least 18 months for product manufacturers to change their, their packaging and their labeling. And so, so manufacturers should be aware of that, that the UDI does expire in, in next year, 2023. And it's unknown whether or not FDA would extend that exception again. I will say in the in years ago when they first, I think they first granted in 2014 and 15, in the letter from FDA granting that exception, it was laid out that industry could then request another extension a year before the exception expires. This letter that that was issued by FDA in 2021 did not permit that same extension request. And so, you know, you can read into that or not, but I think it's worth worth folks knowing that 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 policy exception is going to set to expire. And so manufacturers have to have to think about how they're going to comply with those UDI requirements. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you said, read into it what you want, but maybe a, a telling sign that that it, since it's not in this latest one, probably going to change. <laughs> right, right. So using your crystal ball a little bit, if this legislation, if there was federal legislation that came out regarding transparency for ingredients around whether it's just femcare products or femcare and AI and baby care, whatever that looks like, how would that kind of legislation interact or influence or change these FDA regulations? So the legislation will give FDA the authority. It'll give it an explicit authority to require the disclosure. Essentially what it's going to do, it'll, it'll likely add provisions to the FDA regs that are under the scope of period products. It's going to add additional labeling requirements to that. And so it will be under the FDA's purview to ensure that this is being complied with by industry. I mean, in an ideal world, the federal bill and hopefully if it would pass as law would be as prescriptive as possible for manufacturers. So it's very similar to what the California state law looks like so that there's little room for interpretation for manufacturers. But I suspect there's going to be some level of regulatory rulemaking that FDA is going to be required to, to, to make after this bill, I, I suspect that somewhere in this legislation, there will be authority granted to FDA for them to implement additional regulations surrounding this transparency requirement. You know, and unfortunately, that'll that'll slow down the process. And it gives, again, more states the time to implement their own regulatory requirements. So that's unfortunate. But hopefully, in an ideal world, that federal bill will be as prescriptive as possible and will preempt states from requiring any uh, additional requirements that conflict with what FDA re requires. Yeah, so definitely the potential for some short-term headaches for manufacturers, okay. but hopefully long-term solutions and, and ultimately long-term benefits for the consumers. Yeah, exactly. Now, in, in your hygienics presentation, you dove a little deeper into, I think it was the New York law, correct? 
I did. I think I went into both of them. Oh, okay. So yep. I was wondering if you could you could explain some of the details um, and the background for those laws, where they stand today, and and we've talked about this a little, but if there are any responses that industry players or industry producers are taking as they prepare for some of the laws to be enacted, or as as these laws have been signed and, and come into law. Yeah, so I touched about on this a little bit before. So New York, it's law, it's already in effect. It, manufacturers were required to begin disclosing ingredients as of October 1st of 2021. Unfortunately, in that law, there was no language allowing for product sale through, meaning that if there was product on the shelves prior to October 1st and was not labeled appropriately, that it can continue to stay there. That was one of those unknowns and one of those ambiguous issues with the law, unfortunately. And so that train has left the station. They should be complying with New York already. There was a lot of effort among industry to get the state of New York, the governor's office, or some a regulatory agency to look at that law and develop some regulations surrounding it to help manufacturers comply with it, to, to clear up some of this ambiguity. Because really, the, the, the law is a one-pager, and it just says manufacturers have to disclose all intentionally added ingredients on the product label. And then, then also has some penalties in it. I, I mean, it's not very extensive. There's a definition for what a period product is, but that's basically the law. And so there was a lot of effort by industry to get the state agency, the state government to develop some implementing regulations for, for industry. And, you know, I think just given given the, some of the issues that the state of New York has been facing over the past two to three years, there wasn't an appetite for them to do so. And so I think at this point, companies have to have to figure out how to comply with that. At the other end, uh, as I said, California goes into effect January 2023. That law is very prescriptive. It defines what an intentionally added ingredient is, and it, it really focuses on those ingredients that serve a functional purpose in the end product. So really serve a purpose to catching menstruation. And so that was very important because that clarifies, you know, the definition of ingredient, while it seems very obvious, those of us in industry know that it's not so obvious. There should be a threshold. And so the in California, there was definitions that kind of put it in that threshold, right? There are abilities for manufacturers to protect their confidential business information, which, you know, again, is crucial for manufacturers to continue to innovate, make more sustainable products, as we talked about that at the beginning of the podcast. But it also does ensure that if there are ingredients that have been deemed by other regulatory agencies in, in, in the California law, we're really looking at the EU, there are certain ingredients that the EU has designated as chemicals of concern. And if there are any of those ingredients that are intentionally added in period products, manufacturers have to disclose them. They can't, they can't claim confidential business information for any of those ingredients where, you know, that's, I think, a really important aspect for consumers to, to recognize the, the continued, you know, safety elements here that, that the manufacturers are trying to instill or incorporate into their products. So another totally contrary to New York, there was a sell-through provision in the state of California. So companies do have 18 months to make any changes on their product labels for the product packages. They have six months to make those changes online. And so I think that I, I, I hope to see less questions, less ambiguity around the California law itself. I think the questions, you know, and I alluded to this before, are really going to be is how do we make one product label that complies with both New York and both California? 
I think that's really what manufacturers, the difficult question that they're facing right now as California is coming closer and closer to implementation. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't sound easy. And the ambiguity of the New York law just isn't isn't helping anything. I know it's it, like, obviously it's in the right place. They're, they're doing the right thing for consumers, but it does make it more challenging, which as, as we said, just makes the need for a federal law in the U.S. all the more pertinent. Yep. And yeah, you mentioned the EU, and I think it's great that they're outside of the United States, obviously, but a legislative body here in the U.S. and in a state is saying, if they say it's bad, we say it's bad. And and right. we see that with all sorts of stuff, with product transparency, with single-use plastics, with recycling programs and, and, and environmental concerns, all that. The EU is obviously ahead of us in, in many, many ways, but it's good to see that we're at least using their learnings and, and what they're putting together and doing for consumers in the EU. Some of our governing bodies are trying to do that here as well, to hopefully at some point enact some sort of global standard or definition for transparency in products and, and many other things. Yeah, I think you, you really nailed it, Jack, because I think, I think single-use plastics is, is a great example of Okay, let's, I'll step back. Is number one, you know, we started off. You asked about the pressures of policy changes in this industry, and I said, obviously, international regulations, specifically the EU. And so, you know, sometimes those pressures can be challenging for us here in the United States. But back to kind of what you were just alluding to is that we can also benefit from that. And I think the single-use plastics issue is a great example of that, which is where we can learn from what went well or what didn't go so well. Were there unintentional consequences? that we can ensure don't happen here? Are there definitions there that, that we really disagree with? And, and can, how do we make sure the United States doesn't make those same, same mistakes? So, you know, we can look at it. It's, it, it is challenging to have those pressures, but I also, it, it does give us the opportunity for the industry to learn from those. And we don't always have to, you know, replicate exactly what the EU is going to do. And we're not going to, and, and our government doesn't want to, but it, it helps us, I think, educate the policymakers on how what they did probably wasn't exactly right. I mean, this is how we can make it better. Yeah. Yeah. And, I'm, you know, you imagine some people maybe in California or, or industry groups, consumer groups might be upset with or frustrated by, oh, it's not going into effect until 2023 or things aren't moving fast enough. But to that point, there is a benefit to being second or third to market with some of these changes because you can, as you said, you can do it right or do it right for you. You learn from what didn't work and what did work in the EU. And and that way, in two years time, you're not making changes to, to the law that you just enacted and causing more frustration for consumers, yep. for producers and, and more ambiguity. Yep, exactly. And you use the word a couple of times, so int intentionally added ingredient. Mm -hmm. So. I imagine there could be some ambiguity there. Like how would someone, so say a company and ends up with a product that has a, a harmful ingredient in it and how would they go about determining whether that, that was intentionally or unintentionally added? So I think you start at number one is that we we all know that there's going to be contaminants, processing aids that are used in the manufacturing process. And that's that was the intent. Number one, most importantly, is to get those out of scope. Right. And I think the terms intentionally added help us get that out, that, you know, trace contaminants are not in scope in either of these laws where we struggle with New York and the ambiguity is that intentionally added 
so there are components that are added to the the wrapper, but you can argue that nothing in the wrapper comes into contact with your body. And that is that really part of the product that catches menstruation? And you can make an argument, no. And so those ingredients aren't intentionally added. Because what we would say is that it really needs to be those ingredients that you know you put in the product that serve a purpose in that end product. So with the cotton, when you're making the cotton, you're putting a pesticide. We know that that was intentionally added to help process with the cotton, but does that serve any purpose in the tampon at the end of the day? No. And so I think there's a really strong differentiation we have to make on what is intentionally added for the purpose of the product in its use, its end use. And that's really, I think, where we want to focus. I think it's, a, you know, and crucial for our industry to continue to that focus, similar to exactly how it's defined in the California Right to Know Act. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> I feel like it could, it could definitely lead to some, well, that wasn't intentionally added type of uh, approach, but obviously I'm sure legislators are <laughs> want to close any loopholes around that as well. And, and we're going to see that. I mean, we're going to see, especially in New York, we're going to see NGOs pulling product off the shelves, bringing them to their labs and testing them for a whole host of chemicals. And we'll we'll see these reports coming out from yeah. NGOs that they found chemicals that weren't identified on a, a marketer's product package. Yeah. And that'll be really interesting because, I mean, over the last uh, probably like since 2016, 2017, we've seen, you know, reports out of France, reports out of Korea and Japan about certain chemicals being in products and that led to some of these changes in Europe. But while while companies in the US, we've had to deal with that or at least be aware of it, particularly if we're selling into those markets or we have customers that are selling into those markets, you haven't seen the same kind of awareness or or outcry from you know the United States market. And so it'll be really interesting to see as these NGOs are doing that and testing these products, does it lead to that same kind of outcry or awareness in the United States. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, they covered a lot there. Obviously the changes in New York and California, more states doing similar type laws, potentially federal legislation coming down the line. What advice do you have for, for the industry, particularly players in the US and that are producing and selling products here or, or supporting companies that are producing and selling products there on how to respond to this changing regulatory landscape? Yeah. You know, I think first and foremost, you need to make sure your company is up to speed on these developments and, and join a trade association, join organizations like BHP and INDA who have staff who have their fingers on the pulse of what's happening in the legislative and regulatory arenas. And it really, you know, Jack, shouldn't just be, this concern shouldn't just be from the marketers. It's, it's everyone within the value chain. You're contributing to that end product. And we see more and more that they're looking at the entire value chain to be involved in these conversations about product safety, chemical safety. And so you need to have an avenue, a way to ensure that you are getting this information up to date, that you know what's coming down the, the pike, you have enough time to, to comply with, all of that. But I think also is be part of that process. I mean, whether it's through a third-party organization like BHP or INDA or internally with your own company, there has to be an outreach strategy internally within your organization. I think, you know, sometimes smaller companies feel like they can't be listened to. They won't be listened to on Capitol Hill because they're so small and they, that they only care about the big guys. And, and it's not true. No, no matter how big or small your company is, you have to have a plan on being engaged, developing a relationship with your local and federal policymakers. They want to hear from you. 
they would prefer to hear from you and especially smaller company, a CEO of a smaller company than than someone like myself who's been lobbying for 15 years. You know, I think that you, you want to be part of the process because you can influence it. I think, you know, if you don't live in this area, it's maybe not as well understood that you can help influence, but you really can. And so I think that it's crucial for companies to be at the table and be engaged, be in the know, so that you can help shape the policies that are going to come down here in the United States in the next few years. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's extra effort, it's extra work, but if you can know what's coming and, and be a part of the conversation, it makes it all the more easier to implement it within your company and, and make sure that your products are meeting the standards yeah. that are being set. Because other other folks are at the table. So yeah. if, you're, if you're not there, <laughs> you're going to be told what the changes are. Um, yeah. and so it's definitely worth taking those small amount of resources and playing a role in that process. Yeah, absolutely. Can't say it better than that. <laughs> <laughs> so Jane, thank you for joining the podcast today and discussing some of these changes in the U.S. around regulations and legislation for absorbent hygiene products. I, I really appreciate it. You adding some, some context and, and details to what a lot of us have been hearing about. No, I really enjoyed it. Thank you again for the invitation, Jack. Of course. Thank you. Before we wrap up the show, I want to make one quick request of our listeners. I love making this podcast. And I want Bostic to continue to create the best possible show for the disposable hygiene industry. The best way for us to do that is by getting feedback from you, our listeners. So we'd like to ask all of our listeners to take a quick three-minute survey to share your feedback on the show. You can tell us what you like, what you don't like, and even let us know what you'd like us to cover in future episodes. And as a thank you for filling out the survey, we'll send you our brand new Corporate Social Responsibility White Paper. The white paper will cover topics such as the importance of sustainable production and design, responsible manufacturing, the consumer need for safety and transparency, circularity and hygiene, and more. We won't be sharing access to the white paper with anyone else for weeks. So if you want early access, please take three minutes out of your day to complete the survey. To fill out the survey, Go to attachedtohygiene.com and click the big button at the top of the page to share your feedback. We'll also share the link for the survey in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. And now we'll roll the credits. Thank you for listening to today's episode. In our next episode, we'll be wrapping up our series on menstrual health by discussing what Bostic learned about consumer needs as we developed our own test for measuring the stay-in-place performance of period pads. Attached to Hygiene is brought to you by Bostic and is hosted by me, Jack Hughes. It is produced and edited by me with the help of Paul Andrews, Michelle Tonkovitz, Emery Chernis, and Nikki Ackerman at Green Onion Creative. Our theme music is by Jonathan Boyle. We'd also like to extend a special thank you to our guest, Jane Wishneff, you can connect with Jane on LinkedIn or message her there to learn more about her consulting work or her previous work with BAHP. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.